The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Let me say to begin with what an honor and privilege it is to be here this evening. Another fun fact about me is I had did some calculations years ago, and best I can calculate, and that's, I'm not good at math, so be careful. Best I can calculate, I've been privileged to speak in about 100 congregations in 11 or 12 states, but I had never been here. So thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate that. Appreciate the good eldership and, of course, Austin for planning these things out. At least that's what was just accused on him. Uh, he is a dear friend of mine. I met Austin. It's been, I don't know, it was back years ago. He was 19 years old, I think. He was down at... Uh, Valdosta State University, I was down that way holding what began a series of meetings. I went back several different years for different congregations, but I was holding a meeting down there at the Pleasant, Mount Pleasant Church of Christ, and Austin showed up on a Sunday night, and I had no idea who he was, but he impressed me that night by feeding me, and then from that point on, we've been great friends. He spent a many a night in my house, slept in my bed, well, not in my bed, but uh, slept in a bed in my house. Let me rephrase that, and uh, we've had a good time. We've stayed awake so many nights, and most of the time when we get together, we talk about preaching, and we talk about sermon design and delivery and that sort of thing, and it's even been accused on him of coming to the Jim Merle School of Preaching. He used to come up and stay several days, and that's all we did, and we had a good time at that. Also, Brother Barry Grider, he mentioned I was in some of his classes in Memphis. I don't know if he realizes the impact he made uh, some of the very first classes I had were what you would call homiletics classes, preacher and his work. Uh, he taught a class on New Testament sermon design and delivery, and I was a part of that. And I can remember the very first time, he won't remember it probably, but I remember the very first time I spoke at the Memphis School of Preaching, was actually a part of his class. I was assigned by drawing out of a hat the topic of hell. And I didn't really want that topic, but it's what came out, so there you go. I was assigned the topic of hell, and I got up and spoke in front of him and, of course, the group of men that were there, and he got up immediately after I did. Like you might have already figured out, traditionally, he'll kind of clear his throat a little bit. And uh, he turned around and he said, what you just heard by Brother Merle was outstanding. He said, you really need to take note of that, you need to really pay attention to that, and whatever he says and does, you need to try to copy that, because that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about designing and delivering a sermon. And I thought to myself, Brother Grider is such an outstanding preacher. Um, he is certainly uh, an expositor himself. Uh, he's certainly an orator himself, but I can't imagine he would lie like he just did. <laughs> Uh, but he told me later he was serious about it, and so I would just want to say thank you. That encouraged me an awful lot at the time when I could have been pretty discouraged, but thank you for that. Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles. I know Austin told you to get over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In order to really set the stage, or if you will, set the table for tonight's topic, we won't be able to begin there. We will be beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. And I've had the privilege and opportunity thus far this week up until a point at least, I wasn't able to watch on Sunday morning, but I've watched all of the sermons that have been preached uh, throughout this series of lectureships, and I've appreciated all of them. And as best I can recall, every one of those speakers 
in some form or fashion got down to at least mentioning 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. And you could quote it. I'll be reading from the King James translation tonight, but whatever you have, I think we'll find pretty much the same. The Bible says there, moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And I remember when Austin first contacted me and said, we're going to have a lectureship on stewardship. My first thought was, oh, great. Uh, My second thought was, uh, what will I speak about? You know, what will my topic be? And he said, well, choose it for yourself. So I said, I'll do that. I'll give me some time. And I went and looked this passage up because immediately 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2 is what comes to mind. And I looked at it and it took me about a minute and a half to text back and say, this is my topic. And what I specified to him was something the effect of being good stewards of the mysterious gospel of Christ. Now, why would I choose that? Why would we even mention that? Well, first of all, let's define a few things that occur in verse 2 and then understand a little bit more about the context of why verse 2 was written. If you just take the words, and that's all I do, I'm a wordsmith, I study words, I love to study words, You take the very first word there, King James speak in English says, moreover. What are you saying, Paul? Paul is writing this, of course, by inspiration. And he says, it is more important than anything I've said yet. In essence, what Paul says to the brethren in Corinth is, over and above whatever I've said yet, this is what is required. And he says specifically, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, not to set up too much of the context, but you have to understand, and I know as Bible students you already do, that if you're thinking about the Corinthian letters, particularly 1 Corinthians, you're thinking about a letter that's written to a group of brethren who were in terrible trouble. As a matter of fact, depending on how you divide that out, and you need to study the book out for yourself to see this, but I see no less than, probably greater than, but no less than 16 individual sins that occurring in Corinth, all of which that had to be corrected. In my estimation, there is no other New Testament letter that addresses such a wide range of problems and issues and sins than this book right here. And it's in the midst of this book right here when Paul is going to rapid fire, even starting from the first chapter, what he has to deal deal with and address their division, right here in the very beginning of that book in chapter 4 and verse 2, where Paul just stops and says, above what I've said before, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And again, I think about that and I wonder, why would Paul do that? Well, of course, he does it by inspiration, but why exactly would Paul as an individual, why would he see the need and see fit to stop and to hold these brethren's minds for just a moment and say, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful? I think it's because he understood what being faithful was. The word faithful is exactly what it sounds like. It is to be filled up with faith. It is the idea literally of that which leans upon, relies upon, and puts all of his belief, we might even say faith, in that of God and the things of God. And in this particular case, Paul says, moreover, it is required in stewards 
that a man be found faithful. And again, I was able to watch most of the lessons that had been delivered, save that one on Sunday morning. And I noticed that each of these men, particularly Cliff, my good friend last night, really just dove into and defined and discussed and tried to describe exactly what stewardship was. But you know what, aside from what they've said, I'm just a simple man from a small town and I want to help you to understand stewardship in an easier way, even than Cliff, and I would tell him that. Uh, but I want to help you understand it in an easy way, in a simplistic way. Because what stewardship really is, here's my definition. This is Jim Merle's definition, not Webster's, not Thayer's, not Strong's or anyone else. Stewardship is allowing someone to have oversight in the absence of ownership. Stewardship is allowing someone to have oversight in the absence of ownership. And so what Paul essentially says, I'll just draw all of that out. Paul says, moreover, it is required that a man have oversight of the things of God in spite of the fact that he has no ownership in those things and he must be faithful in it. That is, he can't not be part-time in it. He can't not be some-time in it. He cannot be any-time in it. He has to be all the time faithful in the things that God gives him. Now, most directly, and it's why I was like, oh me, when he said stewardship, most likely when you think of stewardship, and it's what you heard about on Sunday, it's what you heard about uh, primarily, it's what Cliff got around to on last night as well. But you think about giving, you think about finances, you think about checkbooks and pocketbooks and bank accounts and such, and there's no doubt about that. There are actually two chapters in your New Testament that's wholly given over to that of stewardship. That is 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 8 primarily talking about the checkbook. Chapter 9 actually talking about the checkup of the mind. And that is making sure that we give our time, our efforts, we give our means of ourselves to someone else. So that's what those chapters are about. But I think about that and I wondered at that time, especially again when Austin assigned the major text or major theme, I thought about those words of Paul, Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. What are you talking about, Paul? Why are you writing those words? Well, this is where context comes in. This is where I wish we could discuss much more context, but we at least can back up to the very first verse of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. And look at what he says. He says, Let a man so account of us as ministers, now that word means those who labor, those who put effort into, literally those who raise the dust, as ministers of Christ, and watch this, the stewards of the mysteries of God. So when Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul is not yet talking about any man's pocketbook, any man's finances, any man's giving, any man's contribution. He's talking about what a man would give in order to share what he calls the mystery of God. You mean, Paul, that it is required of me that I be found faithful, faithful as an overseer of that which I do not have ownership concerning the mystery of God? Yeah, that's what Paul means. Now, there's a problem. What in heaven's name 
are the mysteries of God. What in the world is he talking about when he describes the mysteries of God? You see, if you want to put something down, many of you are writing outlines, and I much appreciate that. If you want to put something down right here above this text that we've just looked at just for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you could say that this is that mystery as it is being expressed. Paul is expressing here, just saying right out of the gate, gives no clarification, no explanation. He says there is a mystery here that you ought to take stewardship over and you had better be faithful in it. That's what he says. Now, this is where typically I do not flip nor flop, but we have to again to set that table. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the right just a little bit, over to the book of Ephesians. You're in 1 Corinthians. That's one of Paul's earlier letters. That'll matter when we get a little farther into this. One of his earliest writings. Earliest writings of Paul being 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Next earliest writings being 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Galatians. But go with me to the book of Ephesians. When you get there, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Notice with me beginning in verse 1. And as I was driving over here, I kept listening to this text over and over again because I'm dyslexic. You're about to figure that out. I actually don't read. <laughs> but it, it, I was listening to this text over and over and I kept going back to this text and thinking, boy, I wish I had time to say this. And I wish I had time to say that. Which, let me pause. Did you tell them to bring a sandwich? That's Austin's fault, not mine. I told him to tell you to bring a sandwich. All right, but anyway, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And I want you to look for the word mystery right here. In particular, I'm going to bring out some words that I promise you, you won't see in your text, but are definitely there and important. Here it says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the, underline this in your mind, if not with your pen, have heard, I mean King James speak, of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me word. How that by revelation he made known unto me, watch this now, the mystery is I aforetime wrote in few words. Now, many commentators argue over this and say, well, did Paul write a letter we don't have? What is Paul speaking about? What is Paul saying? I've already told you about the mystery here in a few words. There are two ideas that I would believe. One is that you go back to chapter 2, so just right across the page and up it a little bit. Go back into chapter 2 and you examine basically verses 11 through the end and you learn an awful lot about the mystery. However, he hasn't used the word mystery as of yet. Another thing that I would aspire to and I would encourage you just to consider is that when Paul says here, I wrote to you about this mystery in a few words, I think he meant a very few words, because I think he had in his mind at least, whether it was a major reference or not, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. Again, the Apostle Paul writes the book of Corinthians, as we know that, the first letter to the Corinthians, he writes that many years before he writes to these brethren in Ephesus. And so maybe Paul is saying, I'm going to mention something here right now and start to expound on something here right now that I told you about, not necessarily you, but as the letters are being circulated, as I told the brethren in Corinth about, and I told them that they had to, quote, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. 
And the reason I said that, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, not verse 2 as we know it, but in verse 1, is because I wanted to share with them the mysteries of God. Now, in explanation, keep up the reading, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 1. Or verse 2, if any of you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me through you, word, how that in by revelation he had made known unto me the mystery as I wrote unto you in a few words. Verse 4, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge. So Paul says, I had some knowledge about this, and the knowledge that I got came from God, came from revelation. In my knowledge, in the mystery of Christ. Make another layer. Paul said to the Corinthians, this is the mystery of God. Now he says to the Ephesian brethren, this is also the mystery of Christ. Paul, are you talking about two different things? No, sir. (laughs) I'm making reference to the fact that God and Christ are equal, and I want you brethren to remember that. That's what he's saying. Now you keep up the reading here in verse 5 of of chapter 3 of Ephesians, which in other ages was not made known unto me by the sons of men, but is now, look at that next word, revealed. That word revealed means to unfold or to take the lid off. That was revealed unto this holy apostle by the prophets and the spirit. That, verse 6, in order that the Gentiles should be, watch that word, fellow heirs, of the same body, watch the next phrase, and partakers of His promise in Christ. How is that, Paul? By the euangelion, by the gospel. Paul said, I'm going to share the mystery with you. It's not a mystery of God alone. It is also a mystery of Christ. And the way I'm going to share that gospel with you, uh, to share that uh, mystery with you, is I'm going to share that gospel with you. And the gospel that I'm sharing, he's already told them, chapter 2, 11 and following, here in the beginning of chapter 3, I'm not just sharing with the Jews alone. I'm sharing with the Gentiles. Now, I don't know if you can see this. You see right down the back of my shoes? Can you see? That's joy bells, folks. That gets my joy bells ringing. Because had it not been for the fact... That the Apostle Paul, of course, Jesus told him to do it. That's where he got permission. Had it not been for the fact that the Apostle Paul was willing to take, even if it be in a few words, and to share the Eulangelion gospel through that mystery that was uncovered to both Jew and Gentile, we'd all be lost. We would all be lost. What do you mean, Paul? Keep up the reading here. Verse 7, Wherefore, I was made a ministry, a minister, according to the gift of grace, and God given to me the effectual working of His power, His dunamis. Now that's a power that does not tear down, it builds up. Verse 8, Unto me, for I am the least and the least of all the saints. Now, the Greek right here, and I don't need to get into too much of this, so I can't cross it without saying it. Paul said, I'm the leastest of the leastest. That's literally the Greek word. I'm the leastest of the leastest. But, God gave me this message. God showed me this mystery, and I'm showing you. Unto whom I'm the least of all the saints. 
And this grace is given to me, watch this, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9. For I make all men to see what is the fellowship of the mystery which is from the beginning and hath been hid in God who created all things by Christ. And you've heard these next few verses. To the intent that is now the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known to the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He hath purposed in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to read and stop right there. The Greek language here, if you want to break the paragraphs down, Ephesians chapter 3 goes verse 1, stands alone. Goes verses 2 through 8 is a sentence, but it is a part of a Greek paragraph that actually goes from 2 to 14, but we're going to stop at 11 because I can't read no more. But the point's made. Paul said the unsearchable riches of Christ that which was part of God's eternal purpose has included both Jew and Gentile. Now, when Paul said that, there were many Jews whose necks snapped. They got angry. They boiled over. Many times the reason Paul was run out of cities and beat like he was is because he simply stood up and said, hey, God loves the Gentiles. No, you don't say that. But the beauty of all of that is that we're included in that number. No matter which side we fall on, we today have the ability and the opportunity and even, yea, the privilege of being part of the mystery of Christ. Much more I'd love to say. But I want to tie something together for you now and then we're going to jump to one more text and sit down. If you look back at those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul said again, moreover, it is required in stewards or of stewards that a man be found faithful. That word steward, again, that which has oversight in the lack or the absence of ownership. Another thing that you can notice, and I hope you kept your page. I'm sorry I encouraged you to flip the wrong direction. But in Ephesians chapter 3, I want to reread two verses for you. The first one has to do with verse 2. If you have heard of the next word King James speak, dispensation of the grace of God which given to me word. Of course, he's going to talk about that mystery. That word dispensation... I've been a long time user of the King James. I'm not bashing the King James. If you've got it, I'm certainly not bashing. I'm holding it. The word dispensation doesn't make a sense to worth a hill of beans right here. The word stewardship. The actual Greek word is the same Greek word that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. So what Paul is saying here, if you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God, Paul said it is my charge. It is my, my desire. It is what God sent me to do. To share the mystery and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, that was in verse 2. If you drop all the way down to verse 9, I'm going to reread it again. And I promise we'll move on. And to make men see what is the fellowship of the mystery from the beginning of the world which was hid in God who created all things in Jesus Christ. King James speak does not even bring this phrase out, but it's in, I would, I'm making up a number, okay, my disclaimer. It's in 78% of all manuscripts. Verse 9 should properly read, which is to make men see 
the administration or stewardship that was given to me but was hidden in Christ. So what are you saying, Paul? 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful, particularly when it comes to to preaching the ministry or mystery. Here in this context, Ephesians chapter 3, what does Paul say? Paul says, let me tell you all about the mystery and let me point out verse 1 and 9 to sandwich it in. It is my stewardship. I am set to administer this. I'm not in charge of it. I don't own it, but I do oversee it. And Paul preached the gospel. So 1 Corinthians, that text, chapter 4, is the expression of the mystery. This idea right here that we've just seen in this text is not the expression of the mystery, but yet the explanation of the mystery. And then here we are. Go now, finally, Austin, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you'll see one more thing here, one thing that's very important. Of course, we'll subdivide it beyond measure. But I want you to know this is the exemplification of the mystery. How does Paul set himself as an example of what the mystery of God should be doing, not just in his life, but in mine? How is it that you and I today who were a part of the gracious mystery that was once hid called the church, who have been included in the possibility and the opportunity of salvation by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. How and why is it today that you and I still should be taking part in the stewardship of that mysterious gospel? How is it? I think one way to learn is by the example of men. And one way to learn better than anything is by the example of what I believe, my disclaimer, is the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived. Save Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul was responsible for starting more congregations. And I think even though he took no claim to it, indirectly if not directly, for probably baptizing as many souls as anyone who has ever walked on the face of this earth. And if he set an example of what it looks like to be a good steward, a faithful steward of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I absolutely can follow that. And that's what we have here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pick up the reading. We're going to read incrementally here. I want to show you five things. You'll know right off. They're going to be five if we ever get to them. <laughs> that was the introduction. I told you to bring a sandwich. I'm going to show you five things right here that I absolutely will tell you the text teaches us that is so important to being a good steward of the gospel of God. Notice the first one here, beginning in verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Here's what Paul says. Wherefore, King James speak, and I'll clarify, wherefore we labor that whether we be present or we may be absent, that we may be accepted of Him. Draw your pen down, drop it right there and hold on. What does this mean? Number one, I want you to understand what this mysterious gospel will do, what the mystery will do, and that is for Paul it was, and for us it ought to be, 
a compelling mystery. This mystery to him and us ought to be a compelling mystery. Again, to reread that verse, he said, wherefore we labor, now the word labor in more modern translations, New King James, I believe, New NASB as well, ESV, I think the same, all carry with it the idea, and I think correctly so, he says, wherefore we take aim, wherefore we set our focus, wherefore we fix our minds, Wherefore we move our hearts. Wherefore we nail our feet to the ground. Now I don't know what exactly happened here. I do know as being a student of the Bible as well as I know you are as well. If you read the Corinthian letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, both. Oftentimes you'll find the Apostle Paul answering questions that sometimes we don't even have the question. Uh, he'll answer a question, but we don't know what the question was. And I remember at Memphis, you remember this while you're laughing. Brother Moser took us through and said, I think the question, you know, he, he's just rough on us. Well, you didn't have the questions. But let me show you how this works. If I just, out of the blue, turn to Brother Grider and say, yeah, I think after a while I'll just head on home and try to get a nap. And you didn't hear him ask me a question. What might he have asked? So what do you plan to do after you leave here? That fits. We don't know what Paul was asked. If Paul was asked anything, I would suggest right here in this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 beginning, Paul was asked something to affect him. Paul, why do you work like you do? Why do you labor? I'm using King James speak. Why do you labor so hard? Paul, why is your aim set like it is, just fixed, just tied upon God, and you never seem to waver, and you never seem to fall? You say, why do you say that, Jim? Uh, I can't say it from here. But if you go back across the page, we won't do it. But if you go back across the page and you read particularly chapters 3 and 4 and you trail right on down through the first part of this chapter, chapter 5, you'll find Paul talking about all the terrible things already he's endured and all the trials and troubles the brethren are enduring and how hard life is and how difficult it is. But him continuing to come back to say, you know what? I, and this is what he says in the first part of chapter 5. He basically says, you know, I'd just soon be dead. I'd be fine if I was dead. I'm okay with going to heaven. It's like he talks about in other, other texts, I'm being a straight betwixt two. Paul says, but in spite of that, I stand here and I labor among you. Whether I'm present or absent, I labor here among you. Why is that, Paul? So that I may be pleasing of Him. It's a compelling mystery. The gospel that he's sharing is so compelling, so drawing, so pulling on Paul that Paul says, regardless of what happens in my life, how difficult life can get, how strenuous it can be, I'm going to labor for him and I'm going to work to the point that I please him and not anybody else. Why is that important? Even in Paul's day, as well as in mine. Uh, we're not always going to please everybody around us. How many of you have ever pleased everybody, every time, all the time? Just stand up. I want help. I need help. Because I hadn't done it. And if you've ever done, and this is what this gets down to, if you've ever done evangelism, I realize Robbie episode skin a cat up there. Okay, I got that. We're doing it different. 
But if you've ever been involved in any form of evangelism, whether it's knocking on a neighbor's door coldly or speaking to a co-worker or a classmate or talking to your own child, if you've ever done that, you know there are instances where you can't please those people. We'll use the cold door for an example. You go up to a door, you knock on the door, they're aggravated, you're there, they open the door, what do you want? Well, I'm here, you know, we're with the River Bend Church and, and we're having a, a lectureship and, and I just want, you know, if you want to study the Bible, no. Well, if I could just have it, no. Well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to offend you. Well, you did. Now, they may not go that far, hopefully. You ain't pleased that fella. You ain't pleased that lady. And if she told you to get off her porch and to never show back up and she doesn't care, she's ready to, as Brother Kate should tell us, to go to hell like a gentleman. If they'd have told you that, makes no difference. Why? I ain't trying to please them. Now, I'd like to save them. I'd I'd like to share the gospel with them, but I'm not trying to please them. And Paul says, wherefore we labor, that whether I'm present with you and working along with you and we're working together as Christians or whether or not I'm absent, I'm just dead or in prison, makes no difference because I'm here to please Him. Now ask yourself a question before we go any farther. Am I ready to please Him? Every aspect, every phase of life, I've got to be ready to please Him. That's compelling. That just went in itself to see a man like Paul and to see the way that we could be as good stewards of the mysterious gospel of Christ. That within itself is impelling. It's intriguing. But there are two things here. Because Paul not only is compelled by the requirements that are laid out, and that's what this is, Because if you turn this thing over, James Rogers, I don't know if you know James Rogers. James Rogers uses big words. He's a country boy, but he uses big words. You know James Rogers at least. He's talked about the antithesis. What's an antithesis? It means flip the coin over. They're back opposite. He talks about the antithesis. The antithesis of what Paul said. I know what we read. Wherefore we labor that whether it be present or absent we might please Him. The antithesis is if I'm not laboring, if my aim is not fixed, focused on God, I ain't pleasing Him. Now I'm okay with not pleasing you or you or you. But I've got to please Him. That's the requirement. But there's something else compelling about this. Next verse. It's not just the requirement that's so compelling, it's the reward. Now look at it. He goes on here. Verse 10, he says, For we must... What's that next word? Say it out loud. All. A-L-L, all. What do we learn? You can't get any aller than all. If I tell you I'm going to give you all my keys and I take just one key off, I didn't give you all. For we must all appear. What are you saying, Paul? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether they be good or whether they be bad. What are you saying, Paul? He said, I'm compelled by the reward that is at hand. 
few terms. The terms here pointed out, King James speak, New King James, I think, does the same. ASV does similar. All these translations do the same. The terms, words, judgment seat. What is that? Literally, that is the judgment bar. It's not the judgment seat. I know we see the judgment seat. And I won't sit on your Lord's table here, but some people. But it's not just the throne. There's a throne. It's not one of those. No, specifically, Paul says we're going to all appear before the judgment bar of God. You've heard people talk about raising the bar, you know, setting the bar high. You know, if you're setting a goal, you set the bar at a certain level and you reach for the bar and you try to get over the bar. It's sort of that. The Greek word that backs this up, these two words, judgment seat, judgment bar, is a Greek word, bema. You say, what is a bema? I wish it was a bama. Alabama, roll tie, roll tie. He can move to Georgia if he wants to. It's Bema. A Bema is basically the reward. It's basically, and this, I'm glad this is similar the way it is. It is basically, you remember the, well, we still know about the Olympic Games. Prior to that was the Isthmian Games. There was even another before that in Paul's day. It's basically a game of contest in which or through which the winners are rewarded and some of that reward, not all of it, but some of it has to do with the positioning they take on a platform. Our way of understanding bronze, silver, and gold. See, the judgment bar of God, the judgment seat of Christ and God is not just reaching to some level. It is about making a way up on the platform. You see, one thing about it, if I were ever in the Olympic Games, there's only one place in the building I'd never be on the platform. Never make it there. I could, I could run around the stadium and participation trophy. Paul says, I'm compelled by the fact we're going to be rewarded for this. Now, you and I, at least I don't, uh, I don't like always talking about the reward. You know, there's an extent to which, you know, yes, I, I serve God because I look forward to heaven. I serve God because I want to be rewarded with a home in heaven and such. But you don't really want to talk about it like that. It just seems, it just seems so trite. The truth is, it is truth. Do I flip? Let's flip. Hold you, hold your finger, pen, marker here. First Corinthians chapter two or five. And go back with me to where? If I remembered, that'd be great, wouldn't it? First Corinthians chapter nine. We don't have time to hit top side or bottom of this, but I want us to understand that there is the it is the case that we're going to be rewarded, okay? We're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness and for our, for lack of better terms, for our achievements in Christ. 
Now, it's not a merit award or anything like that. It's not a, well, he did more good works than she did, so he gets high. It's not that. And there's not really a gold, silver, and bronze. That's just for illustration. But there's going to be a time when we stand before the judgment seat of God and we're rewarded specifically, just said it, chapter uh, 5 and verse 10, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be rewarded for that which we've done, whether it be good or whether it be evil or bad. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9... And if I turn there, we'll, we'll know where we are. Beginning in verse 25, I've got to read this quickly. It says, verse 24, I should say, Know ye not that as many as which run, run the race, run all. But one receiveth the, what's the next word? You may have a different one, prize. You mean I'm getting a prize out of this? You know, my children, it's unbelievable. I've got 19, 14, 6, 5, and 4-year-old. 19, 14, don't care. Six, five, and four-year-old, if they hear the word prize, they'll do anything. I mean, we give stickers, folks, and Tootsie Rolls. They'll do anything for it. Well, and they'll remember it. They've been in school all day. If I promised them a prize before I left, that's my wife's problem because she got to deliver. And she picked them up from school. He says that one receiveth the prize. Yes, we get a prize. So run that you may obtain. Meaning you got to work for this. you got to be a part of the race. You can't win a race you weren't involved in that you never entered. you got to get in the race. Once you get in the race, verse 25, and every man striveth. The word striveth is very much like the word labor in our context. King James speaks very much like the word aim which is other translations of our context. Man striveth for the mastery and is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain, here it is, a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. What kind of prize are we going to get? Well, in addition to the fact that we actually get to stand up on the platform there beneath the throne of God, measured up to His bar, we get an incorruptible crown. Other texts, and even this one, talks about it being a crown that fadeth not away. One that doesn't die out. One that doesn't corrode and corrupt. One that doesn't disintegrate. A crown that lasts forever. That's compelling. I got a trophy when I was six years old. Went to an archery tournament. Me and a buddy of mine, we'd been shooting in the backyard for a few days. Went down to a local archery shop. Got there, didn't even know it. They were having a tournament. Uh, I won the tournament. First place. Got a trophy about, about that high. Still got it. Wasn't nobody in it but me and him. But I won. That thing don't mean nothing to me. I could care less. I mean, it's made the move 43 times, but it don't mean nothing to me. That crown will. You're in chapter 9. I apologize. Go back to chapter 3. I mentioned chapter 3 a moment ago. Verse 8. Now he that planteth and watereth is one, and every man shall receive, watch this, his own reward according to his, what's that word? Labor. Again, same translation could say, according to his aim. He's getting a reward based on where he fixed his attention, where he set his mind, the work that he put in, the labor that he put forth. 
Now, when you get home tonight, so I won't have to read it to you, read verses 11 through at least 15 and watch the word work, 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 work. And watch how he tells us some people's work will burn up because it'll be made of wood, hay, and stubble. Some people's work will stand because it's made of gold, silver, and precious stones. And the difference between the work is not the size of it, but the sort of it. I could baptize, and I have it. Uh, Marshall Keeble, it is said to have baptized more than 50,000 souls while he was on this earth. That's impressive if that happened. I think that it may have it won't get him one step closer to God's throne. But the sort of work we do will. Back to our text, we won't leave again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, moving on. Not only is this a compelling mystery, secondarily, verses 9 and 10, that was that. Verse 11 says it is a convicting mystery. This word convicts me. Now, I don't know if you understand the word convict. We think about convicting and we think about convict. We think about someone who's convicted in a court where they say, guilty as charged. Go, you know, go and serve your time in prison or probation or whatever the mix of both. Convicting is not really that in Bible speak. A convicting mystery is one that burns us from the inside. It is one that brings our heightened awareness to everything that is around us and our appreciation for the things that we do have in us. And verse 11 says, watch this very common verse, most familiar verse of the text. Knowing therefore, underline the next word, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are manifest in your consciences. Paul, why do you work so hard, Paul? Why are you even sharing the mysterious gospel of God? Well, one, because it's compelling to me. (laughs) There's a requirement, there's a reward. Also, because it is convicting to me. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Think about that terror. Many ways you could break this down. I won't try to do so in the next hour and a half that I have. You laughed at least. What's the terror of the Lord? Well, in essence, to boil it all down, run it through a funnel and strain it out, it's His judgment. It's the form of judgment that God uses. Now, God, and to be called in the hands of an angry God, tell, we're told in Scripture, it is a terrible thing. It's an awful thing to be caught in the hands of God, particularly to be caught in God in judgment, and particularly to be caught before God in judgment if I have not done whatever He required of me, which in the context already is work for work for work. Not to work through merit, however, but just to work, as Paul said, remember, to be accepted of Him. The terror is His judgment, and most often that comes out in a place called hell. Now, I've actually got some 
acquaintances. I can't call them friends so much. But I have acquaintances who would call themselves gospel preacher. I have to remove the word gospel from before their name who do not like, or maybe even in one case I can picture and think of the man, will not preach on hell. In spite of the fact, Paul says, I know the terror of the Lord. (laughs) And because I know the terror of the Lord, I, Paul said, I persuade men. Now the word persuade right there means to convince with words. And the real tense of the Greek term here carries with the idea to convince with words. You remember when Paul said, I had found myself to be all things to all men? I don't know exactly what Paul meant about that. I know he never changed the gospel, but I'll assure you, Paul was willing to adapt. And like I've learned to do and had to do a few times, And although to begin with I was somewhat ashamed to do, I have no shame at all anymore in doing so. If it takes it, I will beg you. Matter of fact, I had two reasons tonight for driving three and a half hours. Two and a half hours. One, to evangelize. To share with you the gospel. And two, to encourage you to do the same. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade, beg with words, men. But what about that? Not only is this convicting because of the terror, it's convicting because of the truth. Matter of fact, he said, he used a little different word with a T right there, but he says, uh, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord persuade men, but are manifest unto God, that I trust also are manifest in your consciences. Paul said, I trust it, because this is the truth. You ever been lied to? You ever lied? God had me. Is hell real? If hell is not real, the Bible is a lie. The whole thing. I mean, every every bit of it. I've got a New Testament in my hand. You got new and old, cover to cover, leather to leather. Holy Bible page to the back with your grandma's birthday. All of it is a lie. If hell's not real. If hell is not real, Jesus was a farce. I've had people before arguing, you know, I don't really think hell's an actual place. What? Do you believe in Jesus? Because if you believe in Jesus, you better believe in hell. You know who the biggest fire and brimstone preacher of all time was? It ain't Barry Griner. He's a nice guy. Doesn't make any difference though. Jesus. In Matthew, um, sorry, Mark chapter 9, Jesus illustrated hell by saying, if it means you staying out of that, you better cut your hand off. You better pluck out your eye. You'd be better off 
to go to, ha- go to heaven missing an eye and missing a hand than to end up in hell. I've been uh, questioned a few times over the years of people who say, well, you know, his preaching's a little rough, and a little negative, and, you know, he preaches on hell a little bit too often. And, oh, do say. I would rather scare you into heaven than swoon you into hell any day. As a matter of fact, any sermon that you ever hear is positive. So I don't like his negative. He ain't preached a negative sermon if it's biblical. Because to preach to a point to keep someone out of hell is positive. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It is a compelling mystery. It is a convicting mystery. It is a... What's my word? i got to find it on the page. It's in the text. Constraining mystery. It's a constraining mystery. You keep up the reading. We just read on through to get to it. Wherefore, verse 12, we commend not ourselves again, but we on occasion to glory on behalf that you may have somewhat to answer of which is the, which glory and appearance is not of heart. Whether we be beside ourselves, that word beside ourselves where we get our English word ecstasy. Paul said, I may be blooming crazy mad. But if that's the case, it's for God. Verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And, verse 15, that he died for all, that that which should live henceforth should live in themselves, but unto him he died for them and rose again. Verse 16, add to it, he goes on, henceforth, or wherefore henceforth, when no see no man after the flesh, Yea, though we know Christ after the flesh now, henceforth we know Him no more. What's being said there? Confusing to me, but here it is. Paul said the love of Christ constrains me. The word constrained means to lock arms around and hold on tight. Matter of fact, it's in a tense of the verb right here that's used that says that his tight, his grip of God and the love of God is squeezed around him again and again and again and again. You know, one thing I've noticed about having children from this age to this age is the little ones still, and even these when they were small, if I wanted to hug them as their daddy, I could. I could just run up and grab them pick them up off the ground, and they do little legs and kick and squirm, and they couldn't get out. If God wants to hold us with His love, to one extent we can't get out. Romans chapter 8, all these things, you know, of love and all these great things of love, no man, you know, we can't escape in that, with the exception of when we get grown, We can get away. God's holding 
He's squeezing, He's pulling, His love constrains us, but as we get older, we get stronger, and we find our own way, and like my 14-year-old son who's six foot three, he just jumps right out and I can't do nothing about it. And I beg and I can plead and I can call, but he, he still, if he wants to run, if he wants to get away, he doesn't have to experience that today. And Paul says, this is a constraining mystery. Because God loves me so much, and if you want to turn this over, and you should, because both things could be seen in the same verse, the love I have for God is so strong. I ain't getting away. I tell my young ones, when we're out and about, especially the four-year-old, she's a, ooh, she's a bit, she's something. I say, hold my hand. And she'll hold on pretty good, but she won't hold good as I do. But us holding to each other is what keeps her out of that street. Yeah. When you hold on to God, because He's already doing what He can to hold on to you, you ain't getting out in the world. He's the love of Christ and strains us. To what point, Paul? We read on to verse 15 and 16 for this. To the point, to the absolute point that I do not see men any longer quoting a hymn, verse 16, after the flesh. Folks, we've got to be willing. I've got to be I've got to be willing. I've got to be willing. You do whatever you want to. I've got to be willing to be willing to carry the gospel to the world, to those around us that are lost, those who are facing the terror of the Lord and do not know, because I'm compelled, because I'm convicted, but because I'm constrained and I see no man after the flesh. Do you know why so many in the world, in the community of Dalton, Georgia, are lost? You say, well, they hadn't ever been to church. Uh -huh. Most cases, we hadn't been to them. And in most cases, we hadn't been to them because we're looking at the flesh. And you, like I have too many times are making subconscious decisions in an instant over whether or not I think someone deserves to hear the gospel or not. They don't look like I do. They, they don't smell like I do. They don't dress like I do. They don't live like I do. They don't talk like I do. They don't think like I do. Of course they don't think like you do. I'm glad they don't. There are people who are dying and will stand in front of a God in that judgment seat right before it, as we would. That'll stand in front of God in judgment and they'll have to face a God they've never known because of me. Because I'm looking at their face. Because I'm making a judgment. Because I'm deciding whether or not that person deserves me to stop today and invite them to study. Or invite them to worship. Or invite them to even think about God. That's me. I get to talk about this because I got 
kind of assigned it. If I don't watch myself, if I ended up dying tonight, I'd be on a pine knot splintered board sitting in hell over this right here. Because we've got to stop seeing people after the flesh. I've got to start seeing people as people who need the mysterious gospel of God. I've got to start addressing people not as individuals, but as potential brothers. And I've got to start loving them. There's two reasons. Two reasons. Two reasons why we don't, I'll use the term from, I think, Robbie's, share the gospel. Which, by the way, if you're offended by that term, we're the only ones who can share it because we're the only ones that understand. Not the only ones that understand it. Don't, don't say that. Don't quote me from your notes. We're the only ones uh, at this point that are willing to share it. Maybe that's, maybe that's the word. That'll work, I guess. You can't save somebody with a gospel that ain't the gospel. Paul said some preach another gospel is not another gospel. But it is another gospel. two reasons. Either one, we don't love them enough to tell them. Or number two, we don't believe it ourselves. Because if I honestly believed that without obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the only option available is an eternity in hell, I'd tell everybody I knew. If I really believed it, I'd tell everybody I knew. It's a constraining mystery. I'll give you the last two. I don't think you want them. Not like I want to. But I'll give you the last two. It is a compelling mystery. Verse 9, 8. It is a convicting mystery. 9 and 10. It is a constraining mystery. 11 through 15. It is a changing mystery. 16 and 17. Look what he says. Wherefore, henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. Yea, not we're known after the flesh. Henceforth, we know, no, we know no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Right in your margin, beside the words new creature, brand spanking new. That's what it is. Somebody says, well, I, you know, I get so nervous and I get anxious. And if I were to try to talk to somebody about the gospel, I mean, I, maybe Paul could do it, but I, I can't do it. Are you a new creature? New creatures do new things. New preachers, new creatures have new beginnings. 
is a changing ministry. And then finally here, the very last, and trust me, we skipped about 25 minutes. It is likewise a connecting mystery. Because Paul says right here, verse 18, listen, you'll hear it. You just hear it. I'll emphasize it, but you'll hear it. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now we are ambassadors for Christ, as though we of God beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What did he say? Reconciled, 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 reconciled. He said we need to get to a place in our lives, Paul says by inspiration, where we are uh, willing to understand that God's entire goal is to reconcile, where I use the word connect us, to one another. How did all this start? This started with Paul saying, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Why do you say that, Paul? Because of the mystery of God, verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What do you mean by that, Paul? How can you possibly explain that? Well, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 tells us the mystery of God pertains to the mystery of Christ, pertains to the gospel of Christ, pertains to the bringing together, the joining together, the connecting together of both you and Gentile in one. And Paul Paul said above all of those texts there, including this one, I desire to be a good steward and to put my aim, my fix, my focus on carrying the gospel to everyone who's lost. Close your Bibles. I want you to imagine for just a moment. Fictitious situation. Imagine that you are good friends with the governor of the state of Georgia. I don't even know who that is. I didn't know who our governor was until a few months ago. So I got to be on TV all the time. Imagine you're good friends with the governor of the state of Georgia. As such good friends that on occasion... As you're driving to and from places you go, you happen to go past the Capitol building and you go in and visit in their office. And you sit down in his office one day. It's a he, right? Let me say he. You sit down in his office one day and, and just as you get ready to leave, he looks at you and he says, uh, can you do me a favor? You're headed back toward Dalton, right? Yeah, yeah, toward Dalton. Can you do me a favor? Um, I've got this, this paper here. I need, I need to carry it. Here's a paper. I got this paper here I need you to carry for me. Um, I need you to be real careful with it. I need you to carry it by so-and-so prison on the way back to Dalton. Just need you to drop it off. You can drop it off the front gate. Tell them it's for the warden. It's extremely important to get there today. Just carry this, this sealed envelope with this paper in it. Carry it back. Um, it's, it's actually very important. Just drop it off there at the prison before you get home. You say, okay, that's fine with me. And you're curious and you get to think about it. You say, you know what in the world could that be? 
what that was. And you get on the interstate. I don't know how, if you get on the interstate. I was on 75 for just a minute, long enough. And the traffic's backed up for miles. And your phone rings and it's your spouse. And they say, hey, can you pick up a loaf of bread and potatoes and milk and a stick of butter? And, you know, for you, yeah, okay, so, yeah, I'm running late, but yeah, I'll do that. You get home, you come in, you throw your coat off, and you eat a bite of supper and crash in the bed. You get up the next morning, you're sitting there, you're reading the newspaper, scrolling through your phone, checking Facebook, scrolling through your phone and drinking a cup of coffee. And you see the headline. So-and-so executed last night, midnight, so-and-so state prison. Hmm. And you remember that jacket. And you get that jacket. It ain't none of your business now, but you pull that thing out and it says, Oh, pardon. So, boy, it's a good thing that'll never happen. It happens every single day of my life. I've walked around so many days with my favorite Bible in my back pocket and walked past people by the dozens. Do I know the truth? I know the odds. I know what the Lord said. They're part of the few that's going to find it. And the only opportunity, the only chance they've got is me being willing to take this pardon right here and to share it with them. And I'll only do that if I'm a good steward of the gospel of Christ. I came here tonight for those two reasons I mentioned. But I want to do the main one. I came here tonight. I don't care what you think about this attitude, this mindset. But because I've looked into here, and on every page God has told me, as a human being and a Christian, that I need to save souls. And I know I can't do it by myself. Matter of fact, I can know I can't do it at all. But I'm blessed to have a copy of the book of the God of the universe who can. I know it's Wednesday night. I, I know it's... I can't tell you what time. It's late. <laughs> and I ain't eating no supper either. But I know I'd stay the rest of the night and the rest of the week if I thought I could take one thing out of this book and save your soul with it. If I thought for a minute that I could read to you one verse, just one verse, and you would say, that is it. That is what it's all about. That is what I needed to know. That is what I needed to hear. And I may not stay the rest of the week. I won't even stay the rest of the minute. But I believe in you. I believe in this book. And I believe in the power God has. 
And I believe there are things that God does in this book right now through this providential book of it that allows men to have their souls to be changed, that has their hearts to be convicted, convinced, and converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's no longer a mystery. And I don't want to stand in judgment. Save I could say I've been a good steward of such. So I invite you. I beg you. If you're not a child of God's tonight, tonight is the opportunity. This is the night. I want to encourage you. Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, you put on Christ in baptism, and the mystery of God is unveiled upon you, and you yourself can be now made a good steward of that gospel, and you carry it around the world. You carry it as far as you go. And now's the time to start. While together we stand and as we sing.